pray. Father, into your hands we commit this service of worship. We do so knowing that anything good that will happen here this morning, if it happens at all, will be because of your grace. And so we come to you as imperfect people in need of change. Part of that change is just learning to love Christ more. And certainly that is the epicenter of the Christian life. Here in his eternal life, that they may know you, O Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so help us to know you more. I pray, Father, that the exhortations implied in this text would find fertile soil in our hearts and that we might respond in a manner that's pleasing to you and fills us with joy. We know that's what you desire, and so we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now, last week, we talked about the need for Christians to trade in comfort-seeking for risk-taking as people who live not for what is seen, but for what is unseen. The driving force of the Christian life should be Not earthly pleasure, but divine promise. Namely, the promise that, in Paul's words, these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal." And so to summarize Paul's exhortation, it is this, stop living for things that won't last. Stop living for things that won't last. Live for the eternal reward that you will receive at the resurrection. And this is what Paul did. This is how he lived. This is what motivated Paul every day. He lived for the promise of resurrection. We talked about that last week. And the fruit of that kind of living was evidenced in him in two different ways. Number one, his risk-taking life, as he shared the gospel, produced abundance of spiritual fruit, a huge abundance of spiritual fruit. Many people came to the joy of reconciliation with God in Christ. Many churches were planted. In fact, so many that by the time we get to Acts 19, we read these words. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Gentiles. Now that's a fruitful ministry. We couldn't even say that about Fort Worth, let alone all of Texas, which is probably bigger than Asia. (laughs) Or so we think. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In Paul's time, risk-taking, gospel-preaching ministry bore such fruit as would eventually change the world. The second kind of fruit of Paul's risk-taking lifestyle was a significant amount of personal suffering. And yet, verse 24 
He rejoices because he viewed his sufferings as sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he counted it a privilege to do so. Therefore, he counted his sufferings joy. The very thing that James will later exhort us to do. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so Paul counted his suffering joy, and he kept his eyes on the prize of resurrection reward. As Christians, we look at the life of Paul, and we see a faithful servant of the Lord. And I don't know about you, I suspect this about you, that you too desire to be like him, at least in this regard. And this is especially true of men who are pastors. We want to be faithful, as Paul was faithful. It's good to have an example to follow. It's good to have a life to emulate. It's good to have a a hero to learn from. And that's what we find in the Apostle Paul. But what does it mean to be a faithful pastor? And, and the question that you should be asking, I'll be asking this one. You should be asking, what does it mean to be a faithful Christian? Now, I'm not saying that this text will give you a comprehensive answer, but it will give us a good answer. And so the passage before us, I think we discover a concise, though incomplete, answer to the question. And I think we'll benefit from it as we read it and study it together. So, Colossians 1, 24 through 29, we have a portrait of a faithful pastor, and I see two main categories in this text, what a faithful pastor is and what a faithful pastor does. Now, since we will be sharing the Lord's table this morning, uh, we won't have time to do the second one. I'll save that for next week. And I really wanted to focus on that anyway, so that worked out to our advantage. What a faithful pastor is, and three points here. First, he is a servant of the church. Secondly, he is a minister called by God. And third, he is a herald of the truth. But before we consider the details of it, let's stand together and read our text. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make known the word of God fully, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now is revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with his energy that he powerfully works within me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Just a little background here. Paul did not plant this church. He'd never been to this church, at least not to this point. He didn't know these people. He heard about them, 
And he gave us some introductory, wonderful introductory words focused on the preeminence of Christ. And now when he comes to verse 24, all the pronouns are speaking, well, most of the pronouns are speaking of himself. It's as if Paul is introducing himself to the church of Colossae for the first time. He's telling them who he is and what God has called him to do. At the end of verse 24, we read, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, watch this, for your sake. Paul saw himself as the servant of the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That is, specifically, for the church of Colossae. Continue, he says, And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister. Paul's faithfulness is manifest in his devotion to the church. It's been a wonderful privilege to, this week, just study Paul's love for the church. We could have spent the whole sermon this morning on Paul's love for the church. And notice, he considers himself a minister. This is diakonos. Does it sound like a word you're familiar with? Like deacon? It means servant. It means servant. He, he didn't view himself as a celebrity pastor concerned with construct, constructing great buildings and drawing large crowds. He saw himself merely as a servant of the church. In fact, he viewed the church as Christ's precious bride. Not in this text, but in the one before it, kind of the parallel text, Colossians and Ephesians, Ephesians and Colossians. He's writing these letters at the same time from the same jail cell, and he overlaps some of the things that he's thinking of. Paul knew that he had been called to be a servant of the church. And the church is what in Ephesians? The church is his bride. The church is his bride. And she needed to be taught. She needed to be cared for. She needed to be disciplined. She needed to be nurtured. She needed to be protected. And Paul served as kind of her spiritual father until the day that he would present her. It's a beautiful phrase now that we've seen it once. We'll see it again at the end of this next week. Paul says, I do all of this to present you. It's almost as if he's He's the father of the bride, presenting the church to Christ and from Christ to the Father. And so in a sense, she is, he is her spiritual father until that day. Christ has given him the special responsibility of making sure she grew to maturity. And that at the wedding feast of the Lamb, she would be prepared, as it were, for marriage and he took this responsibility very seriously and very personally. It was his life. It wasn't a hobby. That's why in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, he says this. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be spent 
for your souls. This is Paul's commitment to the local church, his love for the local church. This is the heart of a faithful pastor, any faithful pastor. And clearly, Paul was a strong spiritual leader in his apostolic ministry, but at the same time, he always viewed himself as nothing but a lowly servant of the church. He called himself the least of the apostles. He called himself the chief of sinners. People in high places mocked him. They said his presence is unattractive and his speech is contemptible. Somebody did a rather humorous survey to compare um, the looks of the preacher with his orthodoxy. And uh, the conclusion was the better looking, the closer to heresy, and the, the less attractive you are, the closer you are to orthodoxy. And you know what? Personally, I praise God for that. They said his presence is unattractive and his speech is contemptible, 2 Corinthians 10.10. But you know what? He didn't mind. He knew that God had put the treasure of the gospel in his little earthen pot, and he was content to use that treasure to build up the church. He's a servant of the church. He loved to serve the church. He could... This Apostle Paul was so incredibly fruitful. In my study this week, it led me to ask the question, how in the world could such an incredibly successful pastor maintain such modesty and humility? And when I see these other statements of Paul, I think it was because he never got over how much Christ had forgiven him. At the peak of his ministry, he wrote to young Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank him who has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. You see, Paul never got over the fact that the church he was privileged to serve was the very church he attempted with every fiber of his being to destroy. And he didn't think that he was accomplishing the will of, of God, at least then, let me say that the other way around, he did think he was accomplishing the will of God. Can you imagine? And Jesus warned the disciples of that, that when they persecute you, when they bring you before trial, they will think they are serving God. That's exactly how Saul of Tarsus thought. And how devastating it must have been on that day when he met Jesus face to face to find out that he had been the enemy of God all along. The man who once sought to destroy the church now loved her with his life. Listen to part of a letter he sent to the church of Thessalonica. He wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8, we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pe pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because we had become, you had become so very dear to us. You hear the love of Paul for the church? No wonder he got so upset at the church of Galatia when they started to turn their back on the gospel. He loved them. Those whom he loves, the Lord disciplines. Well, I have to confess, as a young pastor, I tended to err on the side of harshness and abrasiveness when it wasn't necessary. And some of you know that's true. But God has a way of humbling and tenderizing those whom he entrusts the care of his most precious possession. Paul was deeply humbled by Christ, and the fruit of that humility was love for Christ's church, his bride. It was Paul's delight to be the servant of the bride. He freely suffered for the church, and he understood that as far as God was concerned, she is his body, the body of Christ. And so Paul says to this little insignificant backwater church, I mean, this is a church plant. This is a rural church plant. More than that, this is a church plant that set up in a city and the city moved and left them behind. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing but ruins after the earthquake that took place. They're living in a ruin, just outside of a ruined city. And there they are. And Paul had never even seen them. And yet he loved them. So Paul says to this little insignificant backwater church, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. A faithful pastor sees himself as a servant of the church. Secondly, a faithful pastor understands he's a minister called by God. He's a minister called by God. In verse 25, he says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. The term stewardship here indicates responsibility, authority, an obligation given to a household slave. We know that Paul was called by God into the ministry because it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. It was a devastating and blinding experience, there was no doubt. No doubt that he had been called on the Damascus Road. And being a servant of the church was not something that Saul of Tarsus ever planned on doing. To be sure, he studied to be a rabbi in Israel, but he did not set out to be a servant of the church. Nothing could have been further from his mind. He didn't volunteer for this position. He didn't go to seminary for this position. He didn't seek out this position. He was drafted. He was arrested. He was taken captive by Christ. In later years, he would sometimes begin his letters with the phrase, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle. What's he saying? I didn't volunteer for this. Love me or hate me, doesn't matter. I didn't volunteer for this. He wanted people to know 
Now, he didn't muscle his way into the position. He wasn't trying to, t- to take a, a step up in his career plan. Rather, it was thrust upon him by Christ himself. The testimony of most pastors and elders of local churches is that they too seem to have been called by God to serve the church in a unique way. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't think for a minute that everyone who stands behind the pulpit and talks on Sunday morning is a minister called by God. Many such men are false teachers. Others are unqualified or have disqualified themselves from the ministry. Some men are spiritually qualified and theologically educated, but in the mystery of God's providence, they just never ended up being a pastor. A number of, no doubt, a number of people who are here at our church came to Fort Worth to go to seminary, and God then moved you somewhere else. Not in church ministry, but in some other fruitful service to glorify God. And then there are still others who had no ambition to shepherd the church of God, but God placed them there anyway and caused them to bear fruit. Who has known the mind of the Lord, right? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things? We are dependent on him. He is sovereign. And we go where he wants us to go. And if we don't want to go where he wants us to go, he won't compel us, but he'll make us willing. And we go. Just as a side note and a practical note, how does a young man or an older man discover whether or not he's called to shepherd the flock, to become an elder pastor in the local church? I remember Stuart Scott talking about one day in seminary, a professor asked everyone in the class to tell how they received the call from God to pursue ministry. And he told the craziest stories. One of them was a farm boy who said, uh, he was in class that day, and he said, well, one day I was out in the barn and the Holy Spirit started chasing me and I ran around the barn, 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 and I finally collapsed and said, okay, you win. Are you kidding me? Don't hire that guy. (laughs) And so how do you know? That's a fair question, isn't it? And Paul helps us with that by laying down some certain qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that such a man must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a violent man, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, but he must manage his household well and not be a new convert. Well, those are the qualifications. But even then, you may have the qualifications, and God may not call you into ministry. Even then, a man may still wonder if he's called of God to such an office. So let me offer you um, some practical counsel in the form of three questions. Number one, do you desire to do it? Do you desire to do it? The Lord loves to give you the desires of your heart. We were in Sunday school this morning, and uh, Randy was sharing with us a prayer of the Apostle Paul from 2 Thessalonians. And part of that prayer was like this. If you want to do this, we pray that God will give you the capacity to do what you want to do. And Paul says, if a man desires to be an elder, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. 
So do you desire it? Number two, have people affirmed your ability to teach and lead? Now, I don't mean your mother or your girlfriend or your wife. I mean people in the church who have the authority to open doors before you of ministry or close them. Are they opening them? Are they saying, hey, why don't you come and teach this class? Or hey, why don't you lead this ministry? And number three, have the spiritual leaders in your life offered you repeated opportunity? So number one is, do you desire it? Number two is, have people affirmed it? And number three is similar, have the spiritual leaders in your life offered you repeated opportunities to teach and lead? That's why I think as, as early as we can get a young man here at Calvary Bible Church and begin testing his gifts, the better off he's going to be. There have been young men who came to this church and did an internship, more than one, two that I can think of, who came, they were qualified. There was nothing in their lives that we knew of or that they were willing to admit that would disqualify them. They had a desire to do it, but when we started putting them in positions where they actually had to do it, God hadn't gifted them. And so the doors began to close. I mean, not supernaturally, although God is providentially over it all, but the men in the church, the leaders in the church were saying, not now, not now, not now. And after a while, they concluded, maybe the Lord is saying not ever. And by the way, I find it encouraging to remember that Paul didn't always meet the qualifications that is Saul of Tarsus. And sometimes a young guy will say to me, I desire to be an elder, but my past life is so wretched, I don't think I'd ever qualify. Well, let me encourage you. That may be something that the elders need to explore a little bit in your life, but I'm encouraged. I was encouraged this week with the thought that Saul of Tarsus eventually qualified, and he wasn't borderline. He tried to kill people. He tried to destroy the church. I mean, it doesn't get any worse. And 14 years after his salvation, he spent a little time in Arabia, I think Sinai, because that's where... Um, Sinai is. He spent time at home. 14 years later, Barnabas shows up and says, hey, we all know you're a great teacher. I think enough time has passed. Let's stay away from Jerusalem. I need your help with the Gentiles. And he went. And God opened the door of ministry for him and blessed him and gave him the desire of his heart and he shook the world. Paul knew that he had been drafted into a stewardship from God for the sake of the church. And so we've learned that a faithful pastor sees himself as a servant of the church, and that he is a minister called by God, and thirdly and finally, before we take the Lord's Supper, a faithful pastor is a herald of the truth. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of from God that was given to me for you, that is the church, and here's what his stewardship was supposed to do, to make the word of God fully known. Now, I'm not going to dive into the mystery today. We'll dive into the mystery next week. That's the next word. But to make the word of God fully known. 
Fully known here means to give full scope to the Word of God. That is, to proclaim it all, to complete it, to finish it, to tell it completely. And by the way, this is a a great text to support expository preaching. And we don't pick and choose what we're going to preach. We just go to the next set of verses. The faithful pastor understands that he is to preach Christ in all the glorious fullness of his person to everyone, regardless of race, nationality, social position. And he understands that he is to preach it all and hold nothing back. Now, when you get to your small group, I'm going to challenge you to think about how these three descriptors of Paul, what he is supposed to do, how does that apply to you? Yes, Paul is an apostle, but the things that he had been given by God to do, some of them apply directly to you, and this is certainly one of them. Our job is to make the word of God fully known, even if that's at home to your children, even if it's at work as best you can. When you have opportunity, you minister the word of God. You don't give your own opinion all the time. You don't make that the basis. We just committed to that in our uh, church covenant we did a few minutes ago. It's not anyone else's opinion. It's what did God say? Here's what God said. And if people want to argue with you, just show them in the Bible so they know they're arguing with God and not you. Modern preachers often think they can reach more people if they soften the message and make it a little more palatable to their heroes, their, their hearers. And you know what? You know what the history of that is? The history is the mainline denominations in America all have done that, and almost every one of them are dead. I have a dear friend, an older friend, who was an elder in a uh, PCUSA church in town. And they've tried everything to get people to come. They started brewing beer. They brought tables in to serve food during the sermon. Uh, they've done all kinds of things. And, and he said one time, I, why, is, why is your church growing? Can we just have some of those families? And I said, no. <laughs> I didn't say there's no way they would go to that. But I, I said to him, listen, look, we're not doing anything fancy or funny or terribly creative. We just stand up, we sing, we pray. And we go to the next verse of Scripture and try to communicate what it means in its context. What did it mean to the author? What did it mean to God? And therefore, what should it mean to to me and to you? And people come. And he just scratched his head on that. And many people have done this. Many churches, many denominations. Paul never did. Remember, he viewed himself not as an artist, not as an author, not as an orator, but merely as a servant. He understood his place in God's mission. He understood that the message was not his own. He was merely the delivery boy. He was the mailman. He was the courier. His role in God's redemptive plan was simply to deliver God's message to anyone who would hear, even if that audience was hostile. And he would leave nothing out. And some will say, but wait, I mean, if we teach, preach, and evangelize with the Bible as it is written, no one will believe. No one, not in our day, no one will believe. Not in this culture. Sure, there are relevant principles that 
that can enhance one's quality of life. We could preach that, and many do. Shouldn't we just preach those truths? Won't people be more likely to believe and be saved if you show them the relevance of the word of God? Paul never did that. And Paul didn't tolerate that for a minute. And, and if you think sharing the gospel in our day is difficult, it's nothing like what Paul encountered in terms of resistance. Why? Because he was preaching a message that was so contrary to the culture in which he lived. There's nothing new here. I mean, the specifics are different, but the general themes are the same. I mean, think about this. Everywhere Paul preached, he preached the gospel of a crucified Messiah. Not only that, but he preached that message at a time when Jews and Gentiles alike were viscerally repulsed by the idea of crucifixion. For both cultures, Jew and Greek, the stigma of crucifixion made the idea of a gospel that claimed Jesus as the Messiah as an absolute absurdity. A glance at history, the history of crucifixion in the first century Rome reveals what Paul's contemporaries thought about it. John MacArthur observes, it was a horrific form of capital punishment. The condemned died an agonizing, an agonizingly slow death by suffocation. Years before Paul arrived on the scene, King Darius crucified 3,000 Babylonians. Alexander the Great crucified 2,000 from the city of Tyre. Alexander Janius crucified 800 Pharisees these were Jews, while they watched soldiers slaughter their wives and children at their feet. Titus Vespasian cru uh, crucified so many Jews in 70 AD after the rebellion of Israel against Rome that the soldiers had no more room for crosses and there was no more wood to build the crosses. And even if they could, there was no more room for the bodies. This sealed the horror of crucifixion in the Jewish mind. I mean, it's almost as if in the providence of God, he didn't want anyone getting the idea that people would accept this message on their own initiative. That it must be a monergistic work of God. It must be an act of sovereign grace. It must be an effectual call. Otherwise, none of us would accept the gospel. As far as the Jews and the Greeks were concerned in Paul's day, crucifixion was the outcast of society. If you were crucified, you were, you were an outcast. The idea that anybody who died on a cross could in any sense be an exceptional, elevated, noble, important person was absurd. The Roman Empire's policy on crucifixion led Romans to view a crucified person as absolutely contemptible. And as a symbol of that contemptible status, they crucified their victims naked and inflicted maximum humiliation. The Romans used it only for the scum of society, the most humiliating and the lowest of the low. So disgusting was the practice of crucifixion that Cicero wrote, quote, this very word, cross, 
should be removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears as well. It created a visceral response in them. In the face of all of this, Paul came, and all he ever talked about was the cross. All he ever talked about was the cross. He said things like Galatians 6, 14, Far be it from me that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Justin's first apology in A.D. 152 summarized the Gentile view. Uh, Justin was a professing Christian who wrote this. And these are his words. They proclaim our madness to consist in this, that we give a crucified man a place equal to the unchangeable, eternal God. The Gentile view of people who were crucified was bad, but the Jewish attitude was even worse. They saw crucifixion not only as a social stigma, but as a divine curse, and they had biblical warrant for that. Because in Deuteronomy 21, 23, we read, he who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God. So, as they saw it, the stigma of the cross went beyond social disgrace all the way to divine condemnation. In their minds, the reason Jesus died on the cross was God was condemning him for calling himself God. The Mishnah, a second century A.D. commentary on the law and the Pentateuch indicated that blasphemers and idolaters alone were to be crucified. Here's the question. How could the Messiah be a blasphemer? How could God be blasphemer of God? The Jews gagged on the idea of a crucified Christ. To them, it made the gospel unbelievable, unbelievable, and profoundly offensive. And by the way, the Muslims believe the same thing. You know what they say? They say, you claim to love Jesus, but we love him more. We love him more. How can you love him more? Well, first of all, he's one of our prophets. And secondly, you say God put him on the cross and killed him. And we say God would never have done that to his son. God put in a replacement, a lookalike. To them, all of this made the gospel unbelievable. This explains why Paul often found himself the object of hatred and occasionally violent hatred. He didn't go looking for trouble, but it came to him merely as a result of preaching the message people found impossible to believe. Let me say that again. After all the talk about risk-taking last week, let me just say, Paul never looked for trouble. It simply came as he faithfully proclaimed the gospel of a crucified Christ. 
And people hated him for it. They found it absolutely impossible to believe. Nevertheless, in the mystery of God's providence, many people did believe. It's crazy. Many people found themselves irresistibly drawn to the Savior. They saw him as the Savior savior who in love laid down his life on the cross for sinners like me. Today the issue that makes the gospel unbelievable, those issues are different. In a pluralistic, relativistic society, for example, the notion that there even is a God before whom we will give an account is vulgar. It's even hateful. You're a bigot if you believe in God, if you pray. If you believe in God, then you must believe that absolute truth is found in the Bible. You must believe that marriage can only be between a man and a woman. You must believe that there are certain practices that are rightly labeled sexual sin. All of these are repugnant to unbelievers in our day. Nevertheless, the gospel of Jesus Christ is man's only hope for salvation. The gospel of a crucified Christ is the only hope for salvation. And so what does a a faithful pastor do? What does a faithful Christian do? We preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. There used to be a day if whenever I went to the lands of Russia, entered into a church, they would have a pulpit like this, and on the front or overhead in as big a letter, as big a font as they could put it on, they would say, we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. And so as soon as you walked into that church, you knew who they were. Oh, you're those people. You know what they call them? Repenters. Oh, you're repenters. Oh, you're the people who believe that absolute truth is found in the Bible. Oh, you're the people who say that marriage can only be between a man and a woman. Oh, you're the people who are homophobic. Nevertheless, the gospel of Jesus Christ has never stopped saving people. God in Christ has not stopped drawing people to himself. No man comes to the Father but through him. And when we preach and teach and share the gospel with our friends, we do it the way Paul did. In love, with much grace and kindness, not with a condemning spirit, but with affection and compassion. But we proclaim the gospel in its fullest. Not just that God can save you, but that Jesus Christ, who is God, died for you on a cross. He bore all of your sins in his body on the tree. He became a curse so that you could become a child of God. Beloved, this is the gospel. And I'm just saying, if you're, after last week, committed to living a more risk-taking life, 
This is the risk. This is the risk. You're not going around just offending people as a Christian. You're bringing them the full gospel of Jesus Christ. You're laying it before them. You're saying, listen, I didn't invent this. I'm only here to deliver it. And you can accept it or you can reject it. It's probably not a good way to present it. But here it is. It's for you if you'll take it. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have not yet received it, I pray today is your day. You understand it now more than you did when you first entered this building. Would you trust him? Would you bow the knee? Would you put all of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Philippian jailer said to Paul after having him beaten and thrown into the jail, the earthquake happened. He came out, the jailer was about to kill himself. Paul stopped him. And with the realization that these men must have the truth, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in a crucified Messiah. Believe what the world hates, and you will be saved. And so a faithful pastor sees himself as a steward of divine treasure entrusted to him for the benefit of the church so that Jesus Christ may be glorified. Oh, beloved, may we as a church and we as elders and I, the preaching elder, be found faithful. Let's pray. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? None of us. You are so kind to us, so gentle, so patient, merciful. And even when you discipline us, it's because you are a loving Father. Thank you. Teach us, Father, how to be more faithful with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we never be ashamed of it. May we always have our radar up looking for an opportunity to share it. And may you be glorified no matter what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.